This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Welcome back to the show. As I mentioned at the end of the last episode, the Academy's music branch decided that musicals shouldn't compete in the original score category and reinstated the original song score category for 1981. This was in response to the feedback after Michael Gore's music for Fame was allowed in the original score category, and composers of dramatic scores likely persuaded the music branch to go back to the way it was. After Gore won the original score Oscar, the heat stayed firmly on the music branch to keep scores with a lot of songs out of the category that should recognize instrumental music. There were not enough quality submissions to activate the original song category in 1981, but the original song category kept trucking along. Many of this year's crops of nominees were written by singer-songwriters earning their first Oscar nominations, while we also get the return of The Muppets and James Bond. Let's start with the obligatory warning that I will be revealing some plot details throughout this episode. The first song we'll hear from 1981 is called Arthur's Theme, subtitled Best That You Can Do for the movie Arthur. It makes Oscar history as the first nominated song to be written by four people, including the newly coupled Burt Bacharach and Carol Bayer Sager. Bayer Sager had just ended her romantic and professional partnership with Marvin Hamlish, and Bacharach had just ended his marriage to Angie Dickinson. Bacharach was hired to write the score for Arthur, and he brought along Bayer Sager to help write the theme song for the movie about a wealthy playboy, played by Dudley Moore, who finds love with a waitress played by Liza Minnelli. Singing Arthur's theme is Christopher Cross, who helped to write the song as well. Cross was coming off a record-setting run at the Grammy Awards in February 1981, becoming the first person to win the big four awards in one year, Album of the Year, Record of the Year, Song of the Year, and Best New Artist. His status as the new kid in the industry got him the job scoring Arthur, But before the contract was signed, director Steve Gordon said he was nervous that Cross had never scored a film before. Gordon asked Burt Bacharach to score the film, but asked Cross to stick around to help with writing the theme song. The fourth credited songwriter of Arthur's theme is Peter Allen, who had written a lot of songs with Carol Bayer Sager. He gets credit on the song simply because Bayer Sager suggested that the chorus of Arthur's theme begin with one of the lines she and Peter Allen wrote in an unpublished song, and it became one of the best-known lines of Best That You Can Do. It goes, When you get caught between the moon and New York City. Allen, who incidentally is an ex-husband of Liza Minnelli, has said that he came up with the line while flying in an airplane over New York City at night. The song is first heard in the opening credits, as we see Arthur's Rolls-Royce traveling along the New York City streets late at night. Arthur's laugh is heard as Christopher Cross sings about a woman who can help change a man's errant ways and how New York City can help one fall in love. Director Steve Gordon made the poor choice to put dialogue between Arthur and a prostitute over the song, so you really can't appreciate the song at the time. It's played almost in full in the end credits, where you get a much better appreciation of it.
The film Arthur was a big success, earning $95 million through the summer and fall of 1981 as one of the most successful comedies of all time. It gave Liza Minnelli her first big box office hit since Cabaret and firmly established Dudley Moore as a bona fide movie star. As for the theme song, it helped Christopher Cross continue his run of hit songs, claiming number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for three weeks in October 1981. At the same time that the song was climbing the Billboard charts, it was helping the new cable channel MTV, or music television, gain viewers. The music video showed Christopher Cross singing in a recording studio interlaced with footage from the movie. This makes Arthur's theme the first Oscar-nominated song to get airplay on MTV, and certainly won't be the last. The song that Arthur's theme knocked out of the number one spot on the Billboard chart was Endless Love, the title song for the movie about a doomed love affair between two teenagers. Performed by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie, Endless Love had spent an amazing nine weeks at number one, giving Ross her last number one hit and Richie his first as a solo artist about a year before he officially split from the Commodores. Richie had proved himself as a solid songwriter with such hits as Easy and Three Times a Lady for the Commodores, and wrote the song Lady in 1980 for Kenny Rogers as his first songwriting effort outside of the Commodores. The duet featuring Richie and Ross is not the first version we hear in Endless Love. That comes during a party that the parents of Brooke Shields' Jade are throwing. The actress singing the song is Jamie Bernstein, but her voice is dubbed by professional singer Shay Chambers. While she sings, the two lovers, Jade and David, see each other across the room. Jade walks over to David, and they embrace as the song ends, and Jade's older brother looks on with understandable concern. My love, there's only you in my life, the only thing that's right. My first love, your every breath that I take, your every step I
The duet that became the definitive version comes at the end of the movie, starting when Jade goes to see David in jail and spilling over into the end credits. The song is a little bit longer than the end credits, so we hear the end of it with nothing but a black screen. My There's only you in my life The only thing that's right My first love You're every breath that I take You're every step I make And I'm In 2016, Lionel Richie did an interview with Billboard's Trevor Anderson about making Endless Love, and he talked about the whirlwind two days he had to write and record the song. 
and actually I got a phone call saying that uh, that it's going to be this um, movie called In This Love when I come by and um, and check out the movie and then uh, give them my thoughts on what I thought the song should be. Now remember, I'm in the Commodore, so I never had to pitch a, a song. And I didn't really know how to properly pitch because the, the trick is with the Commodores, you don't finish the song because the guys will say after three or four notes, we don't like that next song. Well, that's the, that's the wrong rhythm, next song. So you didn't finish it. So I, I told uh, John Peters and, and Peter Gruber, I said, listen, I'll come see the movie. And I saw the, the, the outtakes of it. And not knowing that Marvin Hamlish and all these other people had submitted their songs too. And so I walk in the door and they said, Lionel, did you, did you see the movie? I said, yes, I did. They said, do you have any ideas about a song? And so I hummed the thought. I said, well, you know, Love Story was a simple ba 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 I said, that's Love Story. I said, in this love should be something like ba 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 it should be a theme, just like that. And I guess they looked at each other and said, is that it? And I said, yeah. <laughs> now, the reason I wasn't too worried about it was because they said it needs to be a instrumental. It's not going to be a vocal. Mm -hmm. so, so I felt very comfortable humming a little melody. Not knowing that's not the way you're supposed to present a song to a motion picture. <laughs> <laughs> so, so about a week later, I got a call from uh, Peter Gruber or John Peters, one or the other, and said, could we have that Baba song? <laughs> I said, you like my Baba song? I said, yeah. And they said, yeah. So I, I, I went down, and now I put the song down. And about that time, there was a scene in the movie where the girl had to present, she's gonna sing part of the song to the, to the guy she loved. And so he, they said to me, do you have, like, could you just write the first verse of the, of the song, just so she can sing the first verse and then we'll have a cutaway. Okay, so I wrote, my love is on you and my life, the only thing that's right. Uh, my, my first love is, I wrote the first line. And the next thing I get is a phone call saying, that worked out really great, Bible. Listen, we decided now we're not going to have an instrumental. We want to have a, a, a vocal and a duet. Now, we've gone from an instrumental to a full-on duet. So we and, we uh, skipped three time, hurdles right there. You're right, right. Now, this is something I was going to be able to do. Let me just explain in my calendar while all this was going on. I was only recording with the Commodores, their record. What I had going for me was, I had, I had um, from 10 to six in the morning, Kenny Rogers. From six to 12, I had Commodores album. And I had a little time from, from maybe one o'clock to four o'clock in the morning to do Inner Love. Wow! So you see how my time. So you see how my time was, right? Mm -hmm. So the reason I said yes to this is because it was only going to be an instrumental. Now they're saying to me, we have a duet, and we want Diana Ross to be the person to sing the duet. Question: Who do you think, Lionel? Who do you recommend should be the person that does the duet? And the first thing I said was, are you kidding me? Me. <laughs> I'm not going to suggest somebody else, right? Of course. Well, it got from there straight to, okay, now we have a problem. Diana's in New York. I'm in L.A. doing two albums at the same time. Kenny Rogers and the Commodores. There's no way I can fly to New York. And there's no way she can come to L.A. because she's going to do it in New York. The only place that she can possibly meet is going to be, of all places, Tahoe. She's doing Tahoe. And there was a little recording studio in Reno. Now, she's doing Tahoe, 
and she wants to record this after her show in <laughs> in Tahoe, which is now one o'clock in the morning. Oh wow! So I have from so I now have from one until four to get Diana Ross on Endless Love. Do you understand what pressure that was, my friend? <laughs> I can only begin to imagine. And and so and by the way, I'd love to tell you I've done many many duets before. I've never done any duets before, let alone a duet with a superstar like Diana Ross. Right. Right. Okay. So now we agree to show up there. We get to uh, we get to. Um, I get in earlier. I fly up. She comes down at one o'clock in the morning, like clockwork. And just to show you how the session started off. I decided I would get a nap before I showed up at the studio. Mm-hmm. Well, I fell asleep in the hotel and woke up late only to hear Lionel, Miss Ross is at the at the recording studio waiting for you. <laughs> Ooh, not not a good uh, not a good start. <laughs> not a good not a good way to start. Okay, so I get down to the studio and of course it's now. Remember, she has done a complete show. She's done a show before the recording session. Normally, come in rested. And I have exactly an hour and a half, maybe two hours, to get her vocals done. Meanwhile, the trailer goes out to the movie. The trailer to the movie goes out at 12 noon the next day. Oh, ooh, okay. <laughs> and they obviously want the, they want the theme for the trailer. So this is going out for the trailer now. Not, this is not the record. This is just for the trailer. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I decide I don't want to go for my vocals. I'll just do 23 tracks of Diana Ross's vocals on everything I could possibly think of. I now get her on, get on the plane, fly back to L.A., mm-hmm. um, put my vocals on around between 7 and 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, somewhere between, I, I, I'm sure we missed the deadline. It, it wasn't 12. Uh, maybe about 2 o'clock that afternoon, I gave him a mix of Endless Love, and the rest was magical history. Wow. But but there's a little twist here. The, the answer to that was, that was just for the movie trailer. Now... I have to go find how to make this record sound big. And now I'm mixing the record at Motown Studios. And I I decided I'll just go mix the song where all of her other hit records came from. Right. I got to the studio only to realize one very important thing. It was sounding too big. And I remember the engineer was getting all the drum sounds right. And I walk into the room and I said, oh my God, that's it. You got the perfect sound. He said, Lionel, I have all the drums cut off. And I said, that's it. Cut all the drums off. (laughs) Just keep a hi-hat and a foot. And once we eliminated the drums as far as a heavy rhythm section, we went upstairs and there was a little machine on the second floor that had, I call it the, the, the Diana sound in it. And that was a machine they EQ'd all of her vocals on for all those years. And we ran her vocals through that machine and magic happened. It was Diana Ross. Wow. And uh, the rest was history, of course. You have, you have no idea, but... I almost lost every ounce of weight I ever had on my body because trying to wrestle that song down while all of this was going on was just hilarious. As I said, the song went to number one for nine weeks in the summer and fall of 1981, and it was widely regarded as the only positive thing to come from the movie. Just about every critic blasted the adaptation of the Scott Spencer novel, but no one had anything bad to say about the title song. James Bond was also pretty much critic-proof, and For Your Eyes Only, the 12th film in the British Spies franchise, was another big hit with close to $200 million earned internationally. 
As with nine of the 11 Bond films before it, the nominated song comes during the opening credits after a thrilling opening sequence where Bond literally disposes of his longtime nemesis Blofeld. That leads into the serene opening for the love ballad for Your Eyes Only. There's a bit of history with this song performance, as for the first time, the singer appears on screen during the song. That would be Sheena Easton, the Scottish star who was just getting her career started after her international hit Morning Train in 1980. The song comes back in the end credits when we see a man and a woman, presumably Bond and the Greek woman he had been helping throughout the movie, swimming in the ocean. Bill Conti was hired as the film's composer, only the second American asked to write music for Bond movies, while longtime Bond composer John Barry stayed away from the United Kingdom to avoid paying taxes. And like Marvin Hamlish before him, Conti put a rock flavor to the score, though it's not there in the title song. Writing the lyrics for the song is Mick Leeson, who wrote the song One Man Woman for Sheena Easton in 1980. Not much is known about Leeson, but he was lucky that studio heads at United Artists not only wanted Bill Conti to write the song, but wanted Sheena Easton record it. That meant Mick Leeson was along for the ride. The producers initially asked pop group Blondie to write the title song, and the song they submitted was summarily rejected in favor of Conti, who had history on his side as an Oscar nominee for writing the song Gonna Fly Now five years earlier. But Deborah Harry and the rest of Blondie were still asked to sing Conti's version, which they refused to do. So Sheena Easton took the job and made it into the movie, literally. Blondie didn't let their song fade away, though. 
The group released it in 1982 on the album The Hunter. Easton's version of For Your Eyes Only was a big hit, getting to number four on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. The opening credits version was used as a music video, minus the credits listings, on MTV in the fall of 1981, around the same time Arthur's theme was on the new cable channel's circulation. Blondie's version the following year was not a hit, and their album was their worst seller. Six months after The Hunter was released, Blondie split up having been together for just seven years. One group that will probably never break up are the Muppets. They have been a part of our lives since the 1960s and don't look like they'll go away soon. The success of their 1979 film debut, The Muppet Movie, meant the Muppets could be more than TV stars. But was the Muppet Movie a fluke? We would find out in 1981 with The Great Muppet Caper. Jim Henson directed the movie, and he had the time to do it with the final season of The Muppet Show in production at the same time as production of The Great Muppet Caper. Like most sequels, The Great Muppet Caper tries to go bigger than its predecessor, but doesn't always succeed. It has more songs, and many of them are big production numbers showing off some puppet trickery, including a water ballet with Miss Piggy that brings back memories of the best of Esther Williams. The plot moved the Muppets to London, not a surprise since the TV show was produced there. Kermit and Fonzie played investigative journalists on the case of a jewel robbery. Kermit meets Miss Piggy, who is the secretary for the prominent fashion designer whose jewels are seemingly yanked off her neck in public. Of course, Miss Piggy falls in love with Kermit as she poses as her boss and invites Kermit to an evening at a swanky nightclub. That's when we hear the Oscar-nominated song, The First Time It Happens. Just as the water ballet evokes Esther Williams, The First Time It Happens is built on a lengthy dance sequence that was probably inspired by Busby Berkeley. It also might please fans of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. The song talks about how normal it feels to fall in love for the first time as Piggy and Kermit dance which is later followed by the other dancers turning it into something resembling a low-budget Busby Berkeley number. All this is taking place as three women prepare to make their next jewel grab. Oh, 
first time you see her No magical change No angels appearing No dreams to arrange Joe Raposo took over songwriting duties for The Great Muppet Caper. Paul Williams and Kenny Asher had done great work with The Muppet Movie, but as I told you in the 1979 episode, Paul Williams was deep into his struggles with alcohol and substance abuse. Kenny Asher didn't feel comfortable tackling both music and lyrics for The Muppets without his longtime partner, and it pretty much ended his songwriting career. Jim Henson had a songwriter already in his pocket, with Joe Raposo writing some of the most popular songs for The Muppet Show and Sesame Street, not named The Rainbow Connection. In addition to writing the opening song for Sesame Street, he also wrote other songs you know, including C is for Cookie, and another Kermit signature song, Being Green. Raposo had become Frank Sinatra's close songwriter after Sinatra parted ways with Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen in the late 1960s. Raposo wrote some songs for Sinatra's 1973 album, which helped sell Raposo as a songwriter for more than felt puppets. But many years later, it's the songs for Sesame Street and the Muppets that have endured for Raposo. None of his songs have ever been recognized by his peers before, but Raposo finally got that with an Oscar nomination that could turn into an Oscar win. After the Rainbow Connection lost the Oscar for Best Song of 1979, Critics and movie fans were in an uproar, so maybe Joe Raposo will be the lucky recipient of a makeup Oscar of sorts.
The fifth Oscar-nominated song of 1981 comes from the epic movie Ragtime, featuring a large cast that included Samuel L. Jackson and Jeff Daniels in their film debuts. It also has a film score by pop star Randy Newman, whose previous work would not lead one to believe he was the best choice to write the score about a series of events that took place in 1900s New York City. Randy Newman is part of a legendary musical family that included his uncles Alfred and Lionel, both of whom basically revolutionized modern film scoring. Though Randy's parents were not in the music business, he took to music quickly and published his first song at 17 years old. One of Randy Newman's earliest successes as a songwriter was You Can Leave Your Hat On, which has been recorded by many people through the years. But when he decided to thrust himself into a career as a songwriter and a singer, he really began to shine. In 1977, Short People was a hit steeped in controversy. Some thought it was a song bashing short people, but others thought it was a two-sided song that essentially advocated for them. Whatever the message of the song, Short People sold lots of records and made the album Little Criminals a hit as well. As far as working in the film industry as his uncles had done, Randy Newman got his start with the 1971 comedy Cold Turkey. Nothing from that score showed any promise of a bright future for Randy Newman as the next big film composer, but Milo Schwarman hired him based on his skills with the piano, since much of the score for Ragtime would feature original tunes played on the piano. If you've seen Ragtime, you probably thought it felt like a Robert Altman movie. And your instinct is correct. Altman was initially hired to direct the movie, and he would have put every single character in E.L. Doctorow's novel into the movie. But Paramount Pictures, for whatever reason, wanted to whittle the story down to the tragedy of Cole House Walker Jr., played by Howard Rollins Jr. in an Oscar-nominated performance. And it worked well. So did hiring Randy Newman, who earned an Oscar nomination for original score, as well as a Grammy nomination and Golden Globe nomination for his score. He also garnered an Oscar nomination for the only song he wrote for the movie called One More Hour. The melody springs from the music we hear during the film's finale, after Walker is shot dead and everyone else moves on with their lives. Thank you. 
though the counter melody is deceptively optimistic, the lyrics are not. Jennifer Warnes, performing her second Oscar-nominated song, begs for someone to play one more sad song for her. That person obviously is Cole House, and she's longing for just a little more time with him, a little hour before everything turns horribly wrong. Randy Newman was 38 years old when he received his first two Oscar nominations, the same age as Uncle Alfred was when he received the first of his 45 nominations in 1938. Randy's two nominations put the Newman family in exclusive company. That family now joined the Fondas, the Coppolas, and the Minnellis as the only two generational Oscar-nominated families at the time. Before Randy Newman could worry about joining his Uncle Alfred as an Oscar winner, there was the matter of a couple other award ceremonies to get through first. The Golden Globe Awards kicked off the award season, as it always does, this time on January 30, 1982, and oddly, there was no original score award that year. So the only chance Randy Newman had to win at the Golden Globes was for one more hour, but it was Arthur's theme that took the award. A month later was the Grammy Awards on February 24, 1982, about six weeks before the Academy Awards. Randy Newman only got one nomination again, this time for Best Score Soundtrack, which he lost to Raiders of the Lost Ark by John Williams. Lionel Richie and the four people who wrote Arthur's theme were nominated for Song of the Year and Record of the Year, but both times those songs lost out to the top-selling record of 1981, Betty Davis' Eyes by Kim Carnes. The day before the Academy Awards, as they always do, newspaper film critics announced their Oscar predictions, and I couldn't find one that didn't pick Arthur's theme as the winner. 
if any of the nominated songwriters were reading the newspapers the day before the big show. Four of them had to feel pretty good, while the other five probably felt it was going to be a very long evening. Though it wasn't one of the most talked about moments of the show, the tribute to songwriter Harry Warren, who had passed away six months earlier, was one of the few times the Academy Awards stopped to pay tribute to a songwriter. The show played snippets of 17 of his songs, including his three Oscar-winning tunes, Lullaby of Broadway, You'll Never Know, and On the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. That tribute came near the end of the show, with the audience already getting lots of music throughout the ceremony. Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy made Joe Raposo proud that his song The First Time It Happens got a big ovation. But was that for the song or for the Muppets, who had just finished their successful TV show? Sheena Easton came on stage to sing Four Your Eyes Only as a futuristic James Bond scene played around her, complete with a silver car and four actors there as four of the famous Bond villains. A dancing James Bond came out in a car that shot lasers to rescue Sheena Easton from the villains before they took off in what I think was a spaceship. I think the big draw of the evening was having Lionel Richie and Dinah Ross there to sing Endless Love. Besides playing the music a bit too loudly, the striking thing about this number is that Dinah Ross rarely looked at Lionel Richie as if it were hard for her to sing a love song to her fellow Motown star and platonic friend. Once again, Jennifer Warnes was passed over for a chance to sing at the Oscars. Instead of her singing One More Hour, TV star John Schneider from the Dukes of Hazzard sang the sentimental ballad. Schneider was just about to release an album of country songs, and you have to give props to his agent for getting Schneider on national TV just before the album came out, to allow his fans to hear him sing before poo-pooing the idea of Bo Duke making an album. After the Harry Warren tribute, Christopher Cross came out to sing Arthur's theme, with the moon on a New York City backdrop behind him and the orchestra. Like Endless Love, the telecast was heavy on close-ups of the performer, and though Christopher Cross might not have been as magazine cover-ready as Lionel Richie or Diana Ross, he was the ringing king of the music industry. Finally, it was time to dispense with the formalities. Bette Midler came out to present the award, dressed in a shiny gold dress with colorful accessories. And Midler was not just going to read a bunch of names and announce the winner. She made a joke about her wardrobe and another about not winning the Oscar two years ago for the Rose. And it just got funnier after that. Don't you hate it when presenters come out here and use this moment for their own personal aggrandizement? (laughs) (laughs) Ah, Of course you do. This is the Oscars. We have to be dignified, as dignified as humanly possible. Uh, That is why I've decided to rise to the occasion. And... uh... give the nominees for the best original song all the respect I feel they deserve. (laughs) All right. I'm going to remind you what the uh, nominations for the best original song are. The the best original song is a song that was actually written for the picture and not just some piece of junk that the producer found in the piano bench, you dig. Um, (laughs) The nominations for the best original song from the film Arthur, Arthur's theme, also known as the best, the best that you can do, also known as that song about the moon and New York City, also known as Four on a Song, <laughs> by Burt Bacharach, Carol Bayer, Sager, Christopher Cross, and Peter Allen. A nice piece of music. Endless Love, from the endless movie, Endless Love. <laughs> kids. Music and lyrics to Endless Love were written by the extremely rich Lionel Richie. From the great Muppet caper, the first time it happens, music and lyrics by Joe, it's not easy being green, Raposo. For Your Eyes Only, from the film For Your Eyes Only, and they weren't kidding, I couldn't watch a single frame. (laughs) Music and lyrics by, (laughs) music by Bill Conti. 
and lyrics by Mick Leeson. How are you taking this, guys? And of course, my own personal favorite, one more hour from the film Ragtime, music and lyrics by Randy Newman. And the winner is... Okay, that was fun. I enjoyed it. All right. The winners are Burt Backrack, Carol Bayer, One of the first things Carol Bayer Sager did after reaching the stage was to turn to Bette Midler and say, I love getting this from you. Bayer Sager had written a number of songs for Bette Midler. Most recently, You're Moving Out Today in 1977. So they had a great history together. With this win, Arthur's theme set a record for the most people to write an Oscar-winning song. It's only the fourth winning song to feature the name of a person in the title and one of the few Oscar-winning songs to come from a comedy that is not a musical. And of course, let's not forget to mention that Carol Bayer Sager got through that glass ceiling to join Dorothy Fields, Marilyn Bergman, and Barbara Streisand as the only women to win this award in the first 48 years. And there really was a nice bonus for Carol Bayer Sager five days after the Oscars. She and Burt Bacharach got married. Though it didn't win the Oscar, Endless Love has endured as the more popular love song. Billboard has named it the top duet of all time, and number 20 on its list of the greatest songs as of 2022. The Muppets have now gone 0 for 2 in the original song category, and it'll be quite a while until we get another song from a Muppet movie as a nominee. Joe Raposo won't be part of that, though. After scoring his first and only Oscar nomination, Raposo kept working with Sesame Street as a songwriter and music director until his death at age 51 in February 1989. Carol Bayer Sager, Lionel Richie, and Randy Newman will be back as Oscar-nominated songwriters, but not next year. For 1982, we're going to have an entirely new list of nominees, four of whom have already had Oscars on their mantles and looking for more. It's going to be another historic year, and I'm excited to share the stories of those nominated songs and their creators on the next episode. Sometimes I forget to let you know how to contact me with questions or comments about the show or any of the content you hear. You can always send an email to jeffswim at aol.com. I love reading the emails, so please keep them coming. Thanks as always for singing along with me on this episode of the Best Song Podcast. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.